So we're talking about going deeper, spiritual maturity, depth. And we've been talking about, you guys, sometimes uh, this aspect of how we have these sort of misconceptions of what spiritual growth is, spiritual maturity is. And we've been talking about that. Here's another one as we enter into this sermon today. Well, sometimes we equate spiritual maturity with a lot of knowledge, like knowledge about the Bible. True? Think about some other thing people that you think spiritually mature. And we automatically go, oh, yeah, they know a lot about the Bible. Problem is, of course, you read the Gospels, and sometimes Jesus said the harshest words for those who knew a lot about the Bible. Why? Somebody said this quote, and I've been thinking about this this whole week. He said the average Christian is educated three years beyond his obedience. An average Christian is educated three years beyond his obedience. In other words, for many of us, especially in this generation, we would rather discuss truth then obey it. We would rather talk about truth than to respond to the truth. We don't need more discussion. We need more obedience. There's a Soren Kierkegaard quote I wanted to read. Do you want, to read, do you want me to read it? I don't know if we have time. You like Soren? You like Soren? I like Soren. Where are you, Soren? Pastor should be prepared with these things. Where are you, Soren? Oh, here it is. Here's what Soren Kierkegaard said. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you'll say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Oh, listen, Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we could continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship. What will we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. We live in a Christian culture today. And the reason why we don't go deep. I want to talk truth. I want to discuss truth. More information. And the Bible simply goes, forgive. What is forgiveness? Let's talk about it. What is forgiveness? What does that word in the Greek mean? Why is it parsed? Love your wives as Christ loved There are three kinds of words for love in the New Testament. There's agape love. Just do it, man. Just do it. You want to grow? You don't need to talk about it more, honestly. Just do it. Now, as soon as I say that, they go, but how? That's what we've been talking about. But the important thing I want to accentuate today is this. James chapter 1 verse 2 says that it's better not knowing if you know and don't do anything with it. And honestly, guys, for some of us, I'm for, it's like every Sunday we're inviting more judgment on ourselves. Because going, 
Oh, I knew that. I know that. Oh, new truth. And we do nothing about it. So it's like, I want to come every Sunday, hear more things that I have absolutely no intention of doing anything about. Does that make any sense? It's amazing how simple the Christian life is when you go, God delights in my obedience. I don't need more. Three years behind it. Okay, so how? That's a big question, how? And can I just tell you something? If you've been coming to this sermon series of this church, and you've been sitting there going, Peter, I'm getting frustrated. Why are you getting frustrated? Because I want the one, two, three, four, five steps to growth. It ain't going to happen. Or can you tell me the, Matt, silver bullet, you know, the, th- the thing that I need to get so that I, no, it's not going to happen. Growth takes time. Furthermore, uh, I, I want it to be easy. Can, can, no, 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 it's hard. It's rigorous. All the things that our generation goes, ah, it takes time. I don't like it. It's, it's difficult and rigorous. I don't like it. The three easy steps too. No, 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 no. So here's what the Bible says about where God is wanting to take us, right? And we've been just kind of parking on this. And we're eventually heading towards Galatians 5. It says that the fruit of the Spirit is, is these things, right? This is what God wants to do in us. God wants to do in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we're talking about various descriptions or definitions of that, right? Can I just say, anybody sitting here going, I don't think those are very important. Anybody? Be honest. Hey, here's the thing, though. If I ask the question, hey, the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, are those trolleys important for them? Hey, your workplace and your boss and people you work with, are, are those qualities important for the Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've looked at, you know, can you go to the next slide, please? The various definitions of it, right? Various definitions of what love is, serving the needs of others, joy, light in God for who he is, peace, confidence and rest in God's wisdom, patience, ability to suffer trouble without blowing up or giving up, kindness, compassion that offers true friendship, Goodness, honesty, transparency, being the same in all situations. Faithfulness, loyalty, and courage. Gentleness, humility. Bless yourself. Can I just say something here? This is how I know you're going spiritually. Ready? To this question. When somebody goes, are you a Christian? Because if you're not growing mature, one of two responses. Are you a Christian? You get all self-righteous and go, that's right. I'm a Christian. Or, or, like you're really depressed and go, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm a Christian. But if you understand what being a Christian is, that we are saved by grace, when somebody goes, are you a Christian? You know what your response is? Yeah. I am. Can you believe it? In other words, if you're a Christian, you don't take yourself too seriously. Do you know how attractive that is to an unbelieving world? When they see a Christian, they like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. I do. Or, yeah, I'm a Christian. I suck. I'm such a terrible sinner. When they don't do that, but they see someone who goes, I'll take myself too seriously. Why? Because I'm not a Christian because I'm good and I'm self-righteous. And I'm not a Christian because I'm bad. I'm Christian because Christ went to the cross and did all that I needed to do for me. And he accepts me just as I am. Isn't that awesome? And people go, you don't take yourself too seriously. No. It's a beautiful, attractive quality among Christians. Amen? Yeah. Some of us walk around like, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what's stuck up your, what, what, why are you, why are you so, 
because we are self-righteous and religious to the core, and we think it's because we are good that God accepts us. That's why. That's why. If you know that God accepts you not because you're good, but because of everything Christ has done, how can you possibly take yourself too seriously? By the way, I'm preaching to myself this morning. Because people have told me, Peter, you take yourself way too seriously. And I go, I know. Why is that? It's because I'm religious to the core and the gospel has not changed my heart yet. Every day, every day, every day. The interesting thing is Paul says these qualities and he just moves on. Do you know that? Why? Because they aren't given to us as characteristics or goals to pursue. Please do not go home and put on a post-it, you need to be more loving. Did you hear the sermon? need to be more loving. You need to be more patient. We're not, we're, not, we're not pursuing these things as goals to pursue. Why? Because we said this last week. One minute recap. We can't produce this stuff. Amen? We can't produce this stuff. This is not our responsibility. The Bible says it's the job of the Holy Spirit. He is the producer. We are just a bearer. The fruit of the Spirit was never intended to be a demonstration of our dedication and resolve. It is a byproduct of something. What is that? John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus said, I'm divine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You are a bearer, not a producer. And all God's people said, it's great news. We can't produce patience. We can't produce joy. We can't produce love. We can't. Am I preaching to myself? We can't, you and I know we can't do this on our own. We can't produce it. And the Bible says, wonderful news, you're not equipped to produce it. You're equipped to bear it. You're simply equipped to bear it. You're just a vehicle through which all of these qualities is expressed. That's why the Bible says, grow up in your salvation. Amazing news. Bible says all of these traits are already in us in seed form. When Christ came to live in us and the Holy Spirit resides in us, he came and brought with him all of these traits in here. They're with us. And the Bible says you're not importing foreign objects that are not, that, that are not in you. You are simply called to grow up. Grow up. These things are already in you. Allow the Spirit of God to grow these things in you. To, 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 to produce them in you. Bear it. This is the reason why, look, look I, one of the best things about this job is I get to talk to people who were in church when they grew up, walked away, and are coming back, and they've gone through radical change. And when I ask them, when I ask them, what was the change? What happened after years? Here's what they never say. They never go, well, I decided I finally was going to rededicate myself. Does rededication work? This is the reason why at this church, I never go, those who want to rededicate themselves stand up. I never. You know why? Rededication doesn't work. It doesn't. Or my resolve do you know what I hear over and over again? This is what I hear. But what, what changed? They go, I came to the end of myself. And I realized that if this was going to happen, then God was going to have to do it in me. And I came to the end of myself and I said to God, God, I'm done. I can't. I'm tired of being a control freak. I'm tired of being self-righteous and trying to do these things. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done. This is going to happen. You're going to have to do it. And they said, I stopped focusing on me, and I began to focus on God and surrender. Many of you sitting here listening to sermon series might be to that point where you're going, God, I'm at the end of myself because I can't do this. 
And when you genuinely mean that and say, God, you're going to have to do it in me, that's when God goes, ah, we're ready. But as long as you go, I can do it in my own strength. I'm going to compare. But God goes, okay, I'm going to let you get to the end of yourself. So for those of you that are like, I'm very close to giving up, God goes, you're exactly where I need you to be. And we'll talk more about that, actually, next week. Okay? It's, it's abiding in Christ. What is abiding in Christ? John chapter 15, verse 9. As a father loved me, so have I loved you. He says, abide in my love. And here's the key to spiritual fruit. Oh, he says, not the things that I should be doing for God that changes me. It is when I stand in awe of what God has done for me that I begin to change. The secret of the Christian life, you guys, is this. Oh, is that we actually do more for God when we're not told what we are to do for God, and that's the emphasis. But we're told over and over and over and over again what it is that God has done for us. Preaching philosophy here at this church, and if this isn't your cup of tea, you might want to go to another church. At this church, you will never hear, here are the five things you ought to do. Here are the three things you ought to do. Practical application, yes. At this church, here's what you're going to do every Sunday here, every Sunday. I'm going to try and paint the most beautiful, glorious picture of God and his son, Jesus Christ, and say to you, look at him, look at him, look at him, look at him. Okay? That's what God says. This fruit comes when we abide, when we rest in this powerful truth, intuitive, counterintuitive truth, that we can never be right with God. We can never produce these things on our own. So God in Christ makes us right with God, and God in Christ produces these things through us. It's when we abide in that, when we rest in that, when we constantly work out the implications of that every day in our lives, that we begin to manifest these characteristic attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. It's abiding. It's resting. Now, less of things to do. It's resting, drawing out the implications of what that means, his love for us. That's when the power of God and the life of God is released into us. Okay, today. And for the next two, three weeks, as we head towards the sermon series, we are going to sort of pivot, and we're going to begin talking about the Holy Spirit. I talked about the Holy Spirit for four or five weeks before I left for my sabbatical. So for those of you that for this is new, I want to encourage you to go to our podcast and listen to some of the sermons because I'm just going to hit quick reviews because we need to move on. The Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Bible says that this is a result of the fruit of the Spirit. So the Spirit and the Holy Spirit in us is the one that's responsible for creating us and making us into the person that God wants us to be. And so we got to ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? How do I relate properly to him? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? That's where we're going. Open your Bibles to John chapter 14, where Jesus essentially gives sort of an introductory, introductory lesson to his disciples as he is still with them but is about to leave them. And this is what he says about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16 says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Holy Spirit, who is he? Here's the definition. We're going to break it down. The Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. The Holy Spirit is the personal divine resident of the Christian's heart. Review. Review from last time. Brief. Holy Spirit, he's God. 
He's divine. He is God, first and foremost. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. There, <laughs> sorry, because of my introductory statements, I feel funny saying this now. There are two Greek words for another <laughs> in the New Testament. <laughs> ah! Ah! I'm making you like this. The Holy Spirit. Two Greek words. The one Greek word is hetero, which means opposed to or different from the former. And the other Greek word is alas, which means just like the former. And that's the word that Jesus used over and over again to refer to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus saying, I'm sending you someone alas, just like me. And we're entering the Disney doctrine of the Trinity, which I don't want to talk about today. Okay? Because it's just confusing and very, very boring, frankly, for some of us. Some of us not, but very boring. So here's a brief thing. There's one true God who eternally exists at three distinct persons. One true God who eternally exists at three distinct persons. Doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are in themselves distinct persons, but they're not three different gods. They're one God. Did you get that? If you didn't, that's okay. We're going to move on. Realize what Jesus is saying here. Jesus throughout the gospel said this. He's constantly saying things like, I am. Before Abram was, I am. He's using the divine name that all the Jews knew was used for the personal name of God. And yet Jesus says, that's who I am. Jesus goes around saying stuff like this. All sin, I, I forgive you. I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. To the people going, but I didn't sin against you. I sinned against him. And Jesus says, all sins are ultimately against me as creator. Jesus says, there will be judgment. Jesus is constantly saying things that says, I am God, I am God, I am God. And now he says, I am sending you someone who's just like me. I'm going away, but the Holy Spirit is coming, so therefore I'm coming. Jesus is so one with the Holy Spirit that when the Spirit comes into your life, Jesus comes into your life. He's God. Secondly, he's a person. The Holy Spirit is not a thing or a force of some kind. The Holy Spirit is not an it or something. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. It's a he. And that means that as a person, he thinks, he acts, he feels, he speaks, and he relates in a personal way. And this is huge. Why? Because you and I are called to have a relationship of intimacy with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. A relationship of intimacy. That's why when the Bible says things like be filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the person. What does it mean to be filled with the person? Anybody ever been in love? (laughs) That question is always tricky because you might be sitting next to somebody and you're going, yes, and the other person's like, We need to have a DTR after the service today. I didn't realize you felt that way. Yes, I feel that way. (sighs) Sorry. When you're in love, isn't it like being filled with the person? You know what I'm talking about? It's like being filled with the person. What do I mean? First and foremost, what you love? You're tremendously under their influence. Yes? Influence. What do I mean? You become completely aware of their desires, of their likes of their needs, their wishes, and their wants, and their passions. You anticipate their every move. You finish their sentences. Influence. You hang on to their every word. Secondly, you're extremely motivated to be responsive to them. Yes? Yes? Your friends go, oh my gosh, you took a shower. I know. (laughs) Why? It affects your behavior. 
everything about you, right? You're responsive to them. You actually listen to their advice. You actually listen to their advice. Guys, isn't this amazing for us? We actually cut our hair to the way that our... Anyone know what I'm talking about? Because before you're like, uh-uh, I like it the way it is. All maddie and nasty, but I like it. All of a sudden, next time, oh my God, you shaved your head. I know. She thinks I look really good in shaved head. I'm like, no. <laughs> you listen to the advice. You arrange your life. Hygiene, dress, diet, hobbies, interests in accordance with them. To be filled with somebody is to be, first and foremost, so tremendous under their influence. And so tremendously responsive to their wants, to their wishes. By the way, a crush, it's just an immature form of this, by the way. An immature idolater's form, a crush. That's what that is. Anybody that's been like, to be filled with the person, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, simple, means to be <gasps> under his influence and <gasps> to be responsive. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Huh? Not all that mysterious, is it? Here's a third about what it means to be filled with the person. I gave this illustration last time when I preached. There was a man who had an affair. And he would bring his mistress over to his house. But when they came over, the guy walked around the room and turned over all the pictures of his wife and their children. Why? Because even the presence of just a picture, just a picture, was enough to make him go, I, I, I can't, not one cheese. Are you so riveted by the conscious awareness of who it is that lives inside of you that has brought integrity into your life? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, 19 says that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And Paul is literally going, are you riveted by whose presence it is that has invaded your life? Has it brought integrity to you? Has the awareness of that riveted your conscience? Are you affected by that? You know what I thought about? Ever like at home watch something on TV? This is what happened. When I was like 13, I was watching something. My grandmother was next to me, you know? And, and there was, you know, there was a scene that came out, you know? And I went all that bad. I was like kissing. And I felt really, like, I wanted to go, Grandma. You know, I wanted one of these. Like, oh, my gosh, you know. Like, I was just like, I was uncomfortable at this thing that was on because my grandmother. Now, here's the problem. How is it that you and I feel that kind of discomfort at the physical presence of another human being? And yet, the presence of a holy God does not bother us one Do you know why? Do you realize that in order to sin, I'll tell you what I do. In order for me to sin, I have to consciously block out my awareness that God is present. I'll freak some of you out today. When you go home today or this week and you're tempted to do something, when you go, God is present, He is here, He's watching. That's why it takes more mental gymnastics to walk down the wrong path than the right one. 
<laughs> Let me tell you what I mean. In order for us to walk down the wrong path and the right path, here's what I need to do. First of all, I got to begin by silencing God's voice in me. Back up. Some of you, you walked in here today and, and you're at a crossroads and you're going, I go that path, righteousness, life. Meaning, this path, temporary pleasure, but ultimately destruction, hopelessness. In order for you to walk down the wrong path, first of all, you got to silence God's divine voice in you. Secondly, you have to be careful not to pray about that desire with the submitted spirit. Third, you have to make sure you don't talk to anybody who holds you accountable. Fourth, you have to make sure you don't look at the passages in Scripture and reflect on them. And fifth, you've got to do all of these things without recognizing you're doing it. That's a lot of work. But here's what happens. Over time, it becomes second nature. I don't think about it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You cannot sin while being consciously aware of his glorious presence in your life. Sinning requires you when I consciously go, I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to think about it. Nope, nope, nope. Because in order to sin, you block out the fact that God lives here. Why is it important? Here's a third. The Holy Spirit, as a person, has emotions. Emotions. And this is so important. This is so important. This is so important. The title of today's sermon, by the way, is The Grieving God, not The Holy Spirit Factor. It's The Grieving God. The Grieving God. And I'll show you why. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on this passage. Verse 25, it says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body, and your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. I'm just going to stop there. Guys, do any of those things need interpretation? Verse 39. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Can you imagine what, the, what, what this church would be like if we actually obey that? Can you imagine if every single one of us, before we spoke, we actually thought, is this going to benefit that person or is it going to hurt? Is it going to build up or is it going to tear down? If it's going to tear down, I'm not going to say it. If it's going to hurt, I'm not going to say it. What if every single one of us actually believed this and lived it? Oh, wow. Our world would be a different place. Verse 30, and do not, listen to this, grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Guys, check this out. This is an amazing insight. Did you know that in all of the New Testament, there's not a single instance in which the word anger, anger appears and God is the object of it? Not a single time. But there are instances in the New Testament where it says, the Holy Spirit God grieves. The Holy Spirit God grieves. The Holy Spirit God grieves. Why? What does it mean to grieve? Literally, it means to oppose his passions. To grieve means to oppose his passions. Parents, can I see your hands? Parents, okay. Want to be parents? Can I see your hands? Want to be parents? Okay. All right, parents. I'll talk to you. 
Parents, you guys all know what it's like for that bond to happen between you and your child? It's not always wonderful, is it? <laughs> Can I get an amen? Hey, man, it ain't always wonderful. It's not. But the bond that happens, it's just there. It just happens to you. Your love for your child has almost nothing to do with what you get back. I, I, am, tell, I am telling you. You know what? We don't want to be too enthusiastic because like the wannabe parents are like, oh, heck no. What kind of a church is this? <laughs> but your heart, I love you though. I love you. Please, please, please continue to. But your, your heart just bonds with your child if you take care of that child. There's this unconditional love that happens with no danger, no danger of you ever giving up on that child regardless of what that child gives back to you. You sacrifice, you change diapers, you wake up at five in the morning. <sighs> Oh, sleep, sleep. How I miss you, sleep. Anyway, you wake up at five in the morning and you do all of these things without a thought to what you get back. You just do it. And because you love that child, eventually you just, you begin to express your desires to that child. Things like, hey, pick up after yourself. Hey, don't lie. Hey, share, share what you have. Sophie, don't follow strangers. We got to reinforce. We got to reinforce that one, by the way, because my wife the other week was like, "Sophie, what do you do when a stranger comes?" She goes, "Go with him." I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 Jenny, Jenny, you got to do a better job of parenting." Go to sleep. Go to sleep at a reasonable hour. You express those things, and here's the thing, parents: Do you do that because you're going, "How can I make my child's life absolutely miserable?" No, 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 you don't do that. Why do you do it? You do it because you love that child. And you say what? You do those things because you're essentially saying, kid, if you do not do these things, your life's not going to work. Simple. If you lie and you turn out to be a liar for the rest of your life, your life's not going to work. If you don't share and you live in self-absorption and selfishness, your life's not going to work. You say to them because you want that person's life to work. Now, here's the thing. There will come a day. When their child will turn to you and say what? And I'll say to you, I want to do it. All these rules, you just don't want me to be happy. You just don't want me to be happy. That's why you won't let me stay up until three in the morning. What do you think I am, a child? I'm six years old now. <laughs> Whoa, Parker. <laughs> he doesn't say that, by the way. Just using as illustration, Jenny and I raised the most perfect children in the world, you know. That's a lie. That's a total lie. And when your child says it to you, what's your response? You're angry and you're mad, but you know what? That's a superficial emotion, isn't it? Because underneath that is grief. Underneath that anger. It's grief. It's, it's this feeling that says, I've laid yourself out for you. I have no other interest than your happiness and joy, your health and your safety. And you put yourself totally out for that child. And when the child says to you, you just want me to be miserable, the grief that comes to the parent, there's nothing like it. Even if you're not a parent, you could relate. Have you ever given yourself, lay yourself out for somebody that you love, wanting nothing in return, 
And that person doesn't just turn to going, you want me to be miserable. They accuse you of ill will. And you're angry at first because you're like, you. But underneath it, there is this <gasps> grief. And what the Bible says is that the heart of the Holy Spirit is infinitely more tender toward us than the most affected parent is toward a child. The heart of the parent toward a child. The Spirit of God comes into our lives freely by grace like a parent. The moment you believe in Jesus as Savior, the Spirit comes into our lives. And by the way, he's moved in from a pretty nice neighborhood. At a tremendous cost and sacrifice, he gives us all for you to purchase your holiness. God's primary aim for your life is your holiness, not your happiness. If you pursue happiness as an end in and of itself, you will never be happy. God says holiness is the route to joy. Holiness is the route to happiness. And he begins to teach you things, right? He begins to express his passions to you in the word of God. What does he say? Share what you have. Don't lie. I don't think it says anywhere, don't follow any strangers. Something about entertain strangers, but that's another, totally another different sermon. The Holy Spirit says things like use your sexuality properly. Don't be selfish. Be generous. Give your money away. Sounds a lot like a parent, doesn't it? But when you say, if I obey the word of God, and here's what some of us are saying today, it'll be impractical. If I tell truth here, it'll be impractical. If I open my mouth and testify, it's just not going to make me happy. If I pursue purity here, I'm going to be unhappy. If I speak truth here, if I do all these things, it just won't work. And what you're saying to the Holy Spirit is, you're out to make my life unhappy and miserable. And he's not mad. He's great. Are you hearing me? He's grieved. Here's the thing. The most astonishing thing about this word grieve is it's only used in the Bible of someone who's experiencing a shattering loss. You ever go up to someone that you love who's an addict and you say, you're destroying yourself. Every time I see you, you're less of yourself. I'm losing you. That's what the Holy Spirit does with you and with me. He says, I'm losing you. He doesn't go, you punk! He says, grief. What kind of a God is this, by the way? Is this the God that you grew up in church knowing? No, of course not. He's angry. He's mad. I got to behave. I got to dwell. Otherwise, did you know this God who says, my heart is grieved. And the person that I've created, you redeemed you to be, you're a less version of that every time you sin. I'm not angry. I'm grieved. He feels like he's losing you. He says, the only reason why I'm telling you these things isn't to make your life miserable. He says, it's the only way your life is ever going to work. 
Do you know that you'll never follow Jesus if you don't believe that he has your best interests at heart? Can I say that one more? The reason why some of you are not following Jesus is because at the end of the day, we don't really believe that he has our best interests at heart. Unless you come to grips with the grieving God who says, I am for you. I have done everything for you. You'll always go, impractical, make me unhappy, it won't work. Do you know, let me live in the real world. And he says, you're a less version of you every time I see you. You're a less version of you every time I see you. And I feel like I'm losing you. I feel like I'm losing you. What do you think of sin as? If you're being tempted to do something wrong, what do you do? I'm serious, guys. I'm serious. We're talking about change, growth here. What do you do? Because if you come at it and you forget about the grief of the Spirit, it'll be, God will punish me if I do this. My friends won't like me. My reputation will get ruined. He'll pay me back. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. Have you read Romans 7? Romans chapter 7? He says, the more you try and not do something, the more you want to do it. Clean your room. Now that you've told me to, no. (laughs) When someone says, don't do that or you'll be in trouble, there's something in us that what? Wants to do it. That's why if you simply look at the prohibitions and you say, I better not do that. I better not do that. I better not do that. The Bible says you'll never change. You'll never grow. It's not going to work. That's the reason why some of us have never been able to overcome certain temptations. Because we're approaching it going, I better not do that. The prohibition. God says not to. What's the answer? It's the grief of the Spirit. Think of the grief of the Holy Spirit. Because more than just disobeying, sin is this. Sin is I am trampling on the love of someone who has given his all for me. Someone who says he will never leave me or forsake me no matter what I do. Someone has proven to me over and over again that he is my best interest at heart. He gave his life for me. Why would I sin and do that to him? Why is this so important for growth and maturity in the Christian life? One last passage we're going to look at and we're done. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. This dynamic, guys, is found throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible for growth. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then Paul says this, put to death, literally he says, kill it. Put to death, kill therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul says, if you want to change, you want to grow, you want to go deeper in Christ, here's a two-step dynamic. Set your mind on things above, kill the sin in you. Set your mind on things above, kill the sin in you. Two-step dynamic. Set your mind on things above, kill the sin in you. Old-time theologian scholars had these words, aspiration, set your mind on things above mortification, put to death the earthly desires, left foot, right foot. And growth and change happens when we do these things, two, two things all day, every day. And you find it throughout the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Sit your mind on things above. Put to death the earthly desires. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 12. Cast off every sin that entangles. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Set your mind on things above. Put to death the earthly desires. This is how we grow. This is how we change. But in order for us to understand that, we have to understand what we've been talking about here, about the grief of the Spirit, because the Bible has strong things to say about sin and its toxic effect on our souls. It says use, strong use of language like this, kill the sin in you. But the process of killing the sin in us can go terribly wrong. 
If you and I don't recognize that the Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. Why? Many of us, we approach it from a very religious perspective. You don't generally use these words, but uh, this is what some of us say. How much sin can there be in my life before I to really start worrying? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> One honest person. Some of us, uh, is there a level of sin that's acceptable for a Christian? And then if you go higher, you're in trouble? Anybody? Somebody said, it's kind of like the you know, mercury level at Lake Michigan. Is it, is it is like danger? Am I, am I approach danger? Is there a level to impurity? Kind of like the Food and Drug Administration has, you know? Is the standard high like homogenized milk? Or is it like the standard purity required for hot dogs with lots of junk, you know, room for junk? Some of us say this. Some of us say this. How much longer can I do this before God says, oh, we're so done? Do you know why we do that? And we struggle with the same temptation over and over again, never experience victory? Because we actually think repentance is for God's sake and not ours. Repenting does not increase God's desire to be with us. It increases our capacity to be with him. Let me say that once more. Repentance does not increase God's desire to be with us. He never changes in that. He says, I'm not going anywhere. But it increases our capacity to be with him. Repentance is a gift that God gives for our own sake, not his. God's not up there going, if I give you too much grace, you might take advantage. God, God isn't worried about that. God says repentance is a gift that I give. It doesn't change me one iota, but it changes you and it changes me. The danger of having a false sense of notion of repentance is not that God won't respond to our sincere repentance. The danger is that we become so ensnared in the distorted thoughts that sin inevitably produces that we just become unable to repent and our hearts become hard. Our hearts become hard. How do we overcome sin? It's not a list of things to do. Set your mind on things above. Kill the sin in you. Set your mind on things above. Kill the sin. Set your mind on things above comes first. What does it mean? What we've been talking about for the past two weeks. It's abiding in Christ. It's abiding, setting, setting your mind on things above. It's not a list of things to do. It's setting your mind on Christ again, abiding in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. It's setting your mind on things above that's found throughout Scripture. It's abiding in the love of Christ. It's abiding in his finished work of Christ. Is anybody in here saying, I'm an abject failure today. I'm unlovable. I'm irredeemable. I'm weak. God can't accept me. God can't change me. The Bible says if you're doing that, you're quenching the Spirit. You're quenching the Spirit. What does it mean? The Bible says that Jesus, the Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. Glory literally means weight. And when you say, God can't change me, God can't do anything with me, it literally was saying, God, my sin has more weight than you. We're saying, God, my sin has more glory, more weight than you and what you've done. To quench the Spirit means we're not continually looking at and abiding in Christ. 
John Newton said this, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at your Savior. Every one look at your sin, take ten looks at your Savior. Even as you think about how you failed Him, think more about how acceptable you are in Him. Our problem is not that we express too low of an opinion of ourselves. Our problem is that we express too low of an opinion of the person and the work and the redeeming work of Jesus, our Savior. Setting your mind on things above. Coming to see what Christ has done. The work is finished, man. The work is finished. I will never do anything more that he'll love me more. I can never do anything less that he may love me less. The work is done. The work is finished. The work is completed. Setting your mind on above. Is that good news? That's one step. Second step is what we've been talking about. Put to death whatever belongs to earthly nature. It's mortification. That means you think about your sins and the things wrong with you. But here's the big difference. Instead of taking it to the law and saying, I want to be a good person, you take it to the cross. There's a way to deal with sin using your own strength and dealing it in the spirit. The difference is simple. The way you deal with sin on your own strength is you just think about the consequences of the sin. I better stop this or God's going to get me. I better stop this or else my reputation will be ruined. If that's how you deal with sin, it's going to keep coming back because you're not really repenting of the sin. You're just repenting of the consequences of sin. You know, sometimes we get caught doing stuff that brings us pain. But pain is not necessarily conviction over sin. Sometimes the pain is just embarrassment over what we've done. Sometimes the pain is pain over how others are going to think about us. So if nobody knows, I don't feel pain. And if you're saying, I have to stop this because my wife, well, I have to stop this because what they'll think of me, I have to stop this, my reputation, my money, all that does is load a huge amount of guilt and all you think about is its consequences and just lopping off the branches instead of getting to the root. But when God is at work in us and you're setting your mind on above, you go beyond just an external way of changing you. You go internal and here's what you do you begin to think about who christ is and you begin to think about what he has done you take that sin you take that sin and you take it to the cross and you say why would i do this to someone who loves me like that and you think about the work of christ you think about the fact like things like this jesus says to his disciples do not fear them that could just kill your body but fear him who could kill your body and soul in hell jesus is saying to his disciples who are about to die Jesus says, physical death, that's nothing. Hell, where your body and soul will suffer. That's what you ought to worry about. And then we remember that on the cross, for hours, all of hell fell on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus experiences hell on the cross. And you go, why would he do that? For you. And for me. You think about that and you go, when I sin, when I mess up, God's not angry. That's religion, man. You guys grew up in church with that and you know that didn't do anything to change you. you. All that does is it forces you to hate yourself and love the sin. Gospel comes and you begin to think about the grieving God and you begin to love Christ and his love for you and you begin to hate the sin. And you don't just repent for the consequences Repent for the sin itself. I 
I really struggled about preaching this sermon today. I'll tell you why. One, we live in a culture where preachers would like to talk about sin. Because sometimes I start talking about sin, there are many of you who go, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm feeling judged. There they go again, sin, and what's wrong with me? And I said, God, Holy Spirit, you have to break through that because as soon as they go to that, they're going to think about all the other sermons they've heard and the religion, all, the, all of this is going to just enter into their mind. And what they're going to do is they're going to just walk out of here and they're going to go, I just feel guilty and overwhelmed. And I just, I don't think I can overcome that thing. God, I need your Holy Spirit to let them know that we have a grieving God who says, I've laid myself out. No benefit to me for you. And when you live as a lesser version of you, not a lesser version of you, it grieves and shatters me. Let me end with this, and we're going to pray. I heard another pastor tell this story about repentance, and I was like, oh my God, the exact same thing happened to me. I was in San Diego. This was like four years ago. At a church planter's training. Got in really late, like at 10.30 at night. Rental car. Got me a GPS. And I'm going to this retreat center that they had in the middle of nowhere. I had somebody with me who was a church planter who was excited about going through this thing. And we're talking. I kind of lost track and, you know, just kept driving. And, of course, the directions that the person says. I just kind of was listening, half listening, half not. And I didn't pay attention. I kind of swerved to the wrong road. It's pitch dark. It's like midnight now, right? There are no cars. We're driving through this kind of shady neighborhood. The guy goes, maybe we should really pay attention to the GPS. Uh, men, what do we do? No, no, I got it. I got it. I've been here before. I've been here before, right? I got it. Don't only stop by ask. No, no, I got it. I got it. We've been here before. Drove another 20 minutes. Finally turned the machine back on. And what did the machine say? Machine comes back and doesn't go, you idiot. You should have listened the first time. How many times? This is like the tenth. What does the voice say? It says what? Execute U-turn. One able. Execute U-turn. Veer. Right. You know what that is? You know what? That's grace. I'm making it simple as possible. But some of you are sitting there going, Peter, you don't know what I've done. I've got all these things in me, man. I, this is keeping me from growing. It's an addiction. It is an obsession. I can't do it. And you have this enormous, like, until I, listen, it doesn't say, clean your act up. Then come. It says, when able, execute U-turn. But he's angry at me. I'm disappointing him. He shattered. He grieves. Here's what I said to uh, our, our, our worship team. I said, this is another one of the regrets I have is that repentance and confession ought to be a natural, normal part of a church family because it's a hugely important part of a relationship with God. But our church, like a lot of churches, we love celebration. We love teaching, admonition. But confession and repentance is a spiritual discipline we don't do regularly. And I said to, I said to our guys, I said, I said we're not going to do this long. 
this morning, as I've been praying this week, I mean, this is fundamental as the very beginning, foundational aspect of what it means to get our relationship right with God. God simply says, I already know about it, and I already know what it's doing to you. I'm not mad. He's not that kind of a God. I'm not mad. I love you. And you are a lesser version of you every time I see you. I'm losing you. And uh, what's our response? Look, our response doesn't need to be drummed up and melodramatic. It doesn't. Our, Our response simply needs to be set your mind on things above, put to that their desire. Don't take your sin to Mount Sinai. Take your sin to the cross. Don't take it to the law. Put it right here at center, guys. Thank you. See, that that cross is the reason why you and I are not called for overwhelmed with guilt trip and God, I got... The cross is the reason why with boldness, as he who says, we could approach the throne of grace. No more excuses, honestly. No more justification. Simply, God, I'm tired of dealing with this and I'm sorry. Help me to see what you've done. And every one look at my sin. Ten looks at my Savior who says, man, there's no condemnation. You're loved. You're accepted. I've done it all. So today, church, uh, some of us, maybe many of us, need to begin this journey of repentance. And again, it's not this traumatic thing. Don't make it that. It's approaching the throne of grace with confidence and laying down whatever that thing is and saying, God, I can't overcome this because I feel bad or I tell myself I have to. The only way is think about the grief of the Holy Spirit who loves me like that. So I put it at the center so that people that want to come down the aisle, side aisles, up front, what I'd love to ask you to do is kneel facing the cross, not the stage, not anybody, facing the cross, And I want to give you an opportunity this morning to do business with God. The one who simply says, when ready, execute your turn. One last thing. Our church, I'm constantly challenging people to stand up and all this because here's the reason why. There needs to be action if you're going to do something, you know. It can't just be in your hand going, okay, yep, 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 I have repentance, gender repentance, setting my mind, okay, fine. No, the actual act of getting up, getting out of our seats, in front of everybody and kneeling down can be the first and biggest and most important step towards when you walk out of here actually doing something. So, the foot of the cross is open.